Well, good evening. What a joy to be with you. For those of you who still don't know who I am, it's Christian Brewer. Um, last week, hopefully you all missed it, but not only did I accidentally make a Trinitarian heresy in one of my prayers, but I also said Moses in my scripture reading. So I can only go up from here from the pulpit. Um, tonight, we'll be looking, we're taking a break from the um, Sermon on the Mount. We'll be looking at a passage in 2 Samuel. Many of you may know it very well. We'll be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 1, or chapter 12, excuse me, verses 1 through 15. Just to catch you up where we are, in chapter 7, the Lord came to David, promised him that he would build him a house, that he would be an everlasting father to him and to his line. And it's not long, however, that we come to chapter 11, and very quickly, David has seemingly forgotten everything the Lord has told him. And in his vanity and his pride, he scouts a woman out named Bathsheba. He takes her, he sleeps with her, he impregnates her. More than that, he kills her husband. The, and David, in his brash arrogance, seems totally unaware of the sin that he has committed. And that brings us to our passage today, or tonight. And chapter 11 ends with these haunting words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So would you give your attention to the reading of God's word in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the light and life that it brings. Lord, I pray now that you would send your spirit to open our hearts that we might receive the things that you have for us here. Lord, you be with me as I seek to open up your word for your people. Lord, would you make me a fitting servant for your spirit? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered what makes a great story? What makes a great story? Why is it that some people almost intuitively know how to draw you in, how to keep you interested, how to lull you into a sort of unexpecting surprise at the end? The great Flannery O'Connor once said in her usually witty way that she found most people know what a story is until they're asked to write one. They know what a story is until they sit down to write one. Now, we all know a good story, whether we know how to write one or not. We can identify it as soon as it's told us. However, whether we're the next Flannery O'Connor or not, and I'm assuming most of us are not, no offense, we all tell stories from one degree to another. We tell other stories to others so that they know who we are. We tell them where we're from, what we do, how we got to be where we are. We also tell stories to ourselves. We remind ourselves of who we are. We remind ourselves of what we've done, of our motives, of how we got to be where we are. Now, if you're being honest, you, I must ask myself and you must ask yourself, how often do those stories really match up with reality? How often does the picture that you paint for yourself match up with what's really happened. So I would propose to you tonight that you, me, we all create stories, versions of the truth to protect ourselves from who we are. We tell ourselves stories, we paint ourselves beautiful pictures to conceal who we really are. We expect ourselves to be great, gregarious, loving, charitable. And yet when we throw back that dark curtain on our lives, we see, much like Dorian Gray, that we are not the bright, shiny pictures of virtue that we thought. Instead, what awaits us behind the curtain of our lives is the crooked smile of a monster. And here's the question which lurks beneath this, which lurks beneath our drive to conceal ourselves. Is there anything more terrifying than coming face to face with yourself? Is there anything that truly shakes us to our core, like seeing how we truly are? Well, in our passage this evening, we see the chosen one of Israel, the anointed King David coming face to face with himself. He pictures himself as this great and righteous king. And yet he finds himself to be nothing more than a conniving, selfish tyrant. However, this tyrant does not stand before another tyrant. No, he finds himself 
in the hands of the living God, the God who has promised everlasting grace to those who are his. And in our sinful pride, we, just like David, build for ourselves mirrors of sin. In these mirrors, we see ourselves as we want to see ourselves. In these mirrors, we concoct stories which keep us at arm's length from who we really are. However, when we come face to face with the living God, the one who calls life into being, he holds up a mirror of grace. And in this mirror, all illusions fall away. Reality comes into clear focus. God shows us who we really are. And yet at the same time, he transforms us into who we were created to be. Today in our, tonight in our sermon, we are going to look at just those two mirrors. That is the mirror of sin and the mirror of grace. Or simply put, the lies we tell ourselves and the truth God reveals to us. Now, up until the end of chapter 11, God is pretty much absent from the entire episode of David and Bathsheba. All throughout, we see that it is David who is sending and sending and sending. He sends for Uriah. He sends for his servants. He sends and he sends. Then at the very end of chapter 11, we see those haunting words. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And now he comes and enters the picture. The Lord, too, now begins to send. Just like David had sent, so the Lord himself is a king who can send. And who does he send but his prophet, Nathan? And if you know anything about biblical literature, as I'm sure many of you do, the sending of a prophet was not just the sending of another messenger. But this was God himself coming to stand before the king. When the prophet spoke, God spoke. This was God confronting David, the Holy One of Israel, standing before the king of Israel. And what does Nathan, what does this prophet do? Well, he tells him a story. He tells him a story that is powerful even today. It's gut-wrenching, it's heartbreaking, it's fast-paced. You, you might have tell, been able to tell when I was reading it that you kind of get caught up. There's not a lot of places to stop. It just keeps going and going and going. It's one of those stories, to quote Connor again, that shouts for those who are hard of hearing. And this story is made up of opposites. You've got the rich man and the poor man. However, lest we assume this is just your middle-class white-collar accountant and your lower-class Section 8 housing dweller, the text presents us with one who is the richest man and one who is the poorest man. We are told that the rich man had exceedingly great possessions. And when it comes to the poor man, all it tells us is literally... For the poor, all was not. For the poor man, all was not. He had none of the flocks. He had none of the herds. He had none of the riches. But he'd have one 
you lamb. And this lamb was more than a mere product. This lamb was more than his business venture. This lamb was a part of his family. It tells us it grew up with his family. It ate from his hand. It drank from his cup. It even suggests that he slept with it at night in his chest. And if you have a pet, you know how real this love can be. We got our dog, Clive, when he was six years old, and very quickly we became those terrible dog owners that let our dog sleep in the bed. But if you own a dog and you're also a terrible dog owner like that, you know how wonderful it is to wake up and to have that dog right there next to you. It's a special thing, a man and his dog. (laughs) Now, not only do we know this bond, but I think David would have known it just as well. He was a shepherd after all. He went for those sheep that he loved. He would have known the pain of this poor man of having a lamb snatched from his hands. We see verse 3 sums it up well that the lamb was like a daughter to him. And yet despite this vast wealth difference, despite all the riches that this man has, what does he do? He takes it. He takes the poor man's lamb. One missing lamb wouldn't even have come up in his ledger. And yet he takes something that belongs to the poor man. All that the poor man has. Now there's a sort of irony that gets lost in translation there when it says the poor man was unwilling. What the the literal text is saying is that he had pity or compassion on himself. He pitied himself so much that he decided to take the poor man's. He had so much compassion on himself that he took what he had no need of. He pitied himself. He had compassion on himself. We must ask ourselves, how often do we have compassion and pity on ourselves? We get home after a long day of work and say, oh, you wouldn't believe the day I had. Or you think, can I never get a second for myself? Is there ever a moment when you, when I, do not instinctively place our needs above others? When we are at our worst, we love nothing more than ourselves. See, our self-concern makes us, in many ways, no different than this rich man. And it takes a story of monstrous proportions to wake us up from our stupor. And it's quite a story. It's shocking in its speed, in its character display. The rich man captures us with his callousness. And still, even more astonishing than this greed and malice is David's response. Look at this. Nathan finishes his story, and what, what does David do? Does he, is he racked with guilt? Is he filled with remorse? No, in fact, he demands justice for this poor man. But even more than justice, he demands revenge. He takes the apportioned penalty for theft four times of what was stolen and goes even farther demanding the life of this one who had stolen. 
And in so doing, he lowers the verdict on himself. Now, we don't know the internal state of David leading up to this point. We aren't given a Shakespearean monologue wherein he's able to recount the inner turmoil. And while we can't see his heart at this time, his reaction here makes at least one thing apparent. That is, he is sure that he is still the righteous king. He is sure that he is the one to bring his people justice. And in a swift form of irony, he, the one had all the pity and compassion on himself, had no pity or compassion for his people. David is the king of Israel, yet he has become like any other king of any other nation. He steals, he kills, he has his way with whatever he wants. Despite this, David is sure that he is still God's anointed king. When David looks through this hall of mirrors that he's constructed for himself, he sees himself to be completely in the right. What mirrors have you constructed for yourself? Perhaps you think to yourself, oh, I go to church, I'm okay. I did my Bible study, I did my quiet time this morning, so I'm in the clear. Or perhaps I went to youth group Wednesday night, I went to RYM this summer. Surely I'm in the clear. Hey, you build up these false personas thinking that it gives you some sort of pass in the sin that you live in. No, no, I'm not selfish. I've had a long week. I deserve this. I've had a stressful week. This is okay. We all have mirrors we have constructed for ourselves, which tells us exactly what we want to hear. We all construct these mirrors, which make us out to be much more like kings than criminals. So you pass judgment on someone for addiction or anger or whatever it is you think is that really bad sin. And then you go on with your life certain that you are all clear. Certain that the glances you steal are not all that bad. Or the times you snapped at your wife and kids was only because you had a long day at work. Whatever you do, you rationalize it by telling yourself, I'm still a good person. I'm still a good husband. I'm still a good wife. I'm still a good son. When you think about how many ministers of the gospel have fallen away, how many in just the past year have come out to have rampant predatorial abuse in the past, and how many do you think kept telling themselves, it's okay, I've done so much for the kingdom. It's okay, I've done so much. This text asks us, what mirrors have you constructed? You, Christian, what have you constructed to keep reality at bay? 
despite our proneness to hide ourselves in the face of God, he does not leave us in our false reality. Instead, the God of splendor, he comes in all of his holiness and all of his glory and invades our lives by holding up his mirror of grace. This mirror is both revealing and transforming. It shows us who we really are in sin and yet transforms us in who, into who we really are in Christ. See, after David tells this story, he's hopping mad. He can barely breathe. And then Nathan says those words which strike like lightning. They pierce David and they should pierce our hearts as soon as we read them. You are the man. You are the man. You are the one who has done this. You are the one who has stolen the lamb, who has killed what is not yours. See, amidst our sin, God holds up this mirror of his word, of his law, and proclaims to all of us, you are the man. You are the man. No one sees what they want in this mirror, only what they are. And in this mirror, you see what Calvin said, that only damnable things come forth from us. Only damnable things come forth. Grace that shows you who you are a grace that reveals that the old man is still fighting to stay alive. Now, after this accusation, it is time for the Lord to stand up and speak. It is time for the Lord to come before David, who has despised the things of the Lord. And here he stands as a covenant breaker, not only breaking that covenant that was made at Sinai, but breaking the very covenant we could go back and read some five chapters earlier. And what follows is a stinging torrent of divine rebuke, wherein God dismantles, breaks down everything that was promised to David. The house that would be his would be filled with violence. His line would be killed by the sword. His wives would be taken from him. And yet also in this divine harangue, we see all that God had done for David. It tells him that he anointed him, that he made him God, king over Israel, that he delivered him out of the hand of Saul all these things that God did for David. And then he adds this line, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. There is nothing which God would have kept from David, but David wanted more. He wanted more. And we, like David, are all addicts just the same, aren't we? We want just one more, just one more, just one one more. And look how David describes this sin of Israel. He calls it despising the word of the Lord. And in Numbers, despising the word of the Lord is no small crime. 
We are told in Numbers 15 that to despise the word of the Lord was to be cast out from the people of Israel. And in fact, by the time we come to 2 Samuel 12, we've already seen two separate leaders of Israel cast out for the same crime. First, we had the sons of Eli, Phinehas and Hophni, who were cast out for treating the things of the Lord with contempt. And then we see Saul, whose sin is described as despising the things of the Lord. Both of these were cast aside from God because they had done this. So now this suspense hangs over this text. Will Israel lose its king? Will they have to start all over? Has God somehow failed in his promises? We see the punishments given for David, the breakdown of his covenant with God, the violence in his house, the taking of his wives. And yet even these pronouncements of judgment are not the last word. The Lord does not leave David. He does not judge him, condemn him, and then cast him aside. No, in fact, we see something which we never saw in Saul, which we never saw in the sons of Eli. And that is that David repents. David repents. And in David's repentance, he finds himself in the full grace of God. And his repentance is simple. Look at this. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no excuses. There's no, but yeah, God, Uriah wasn't that good for Bathsheba anyways. There was no, but she was just so pretty, God. I'm sorry. No, it's simple. And here we see David's transformation. He has gone from seeing himself as sovereign to seeing himself as a sinner. And then we read the most wonderful words of grace that a sinner could ever hear. There in verse 13, the Lord also has put away your sin. You, David, the one who murdered, the one who stole, fornicated, lied, despised the Lord, you are forgiven. However, we must ask, what about his sin? Surely something's got to happen, right? What about the evil done in the sight of the Lord? We know that God is a just God, that he can't just let sin pass. And we see, in fact, that there is someone who does die. There is someone whose life is lost because of David's sin. And that is that son born out of infidelity with Bathsheba. Yet we must be careful to think that this was a death for sin. This was a death because of sin. This is not a sacrifice in that he bears the guilt of his father. However, there would be another son a greater son of David who would come some thousand years later. A son who would bear the sin of his father, David. 
See, David was the man who took the lamb from the poor man, and yet Jesus Christ is the lamb that freely gave up his life for both David and the poor man. However, this is the most astonishing fact, the most astonishing truth that bears repeating over and over until Christ returns. That this son of David, Jesus Christ, not only paid for David's sins, but he pays for your sins as well. And it is because of this death, this once for all sacrifice for sin, that we too can repent and find ourselves in the arms of a loving father. See, we construct for ourselves these halls of mirror where we love to be righteous. However, in his law, in himself, God shatters all false realities and shows us who we really are. He shows us to be the man of sin. However, if you repent, he does not cast you out, but instead wraps you in his grace. And while you sit in these pews tonight, do not think that you escape this. Whether you're an elder on the session or a child sitting in the pews tonight, do not think that this warning is only for those who are really bad. This warning is for you. You are the man. See the sin that clings so closely to your hearts and then see the God of grace who asks you to repent. Today is the day of salvation. Tonight is the night of salvation. If you repent and believe in Christ this night, he, the son of David, who died for sin, will save you. And you too will find yourself in the hands of a loving father. Perhaps it's a father you never had, or it's a father you may have feared your whole life. But this is a father who has, from all eternity, been planning your redemption. A father who destroys the false realities that we've created through our mirror of sin. And yet a father who reveals and transforms us in the mirror of his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do sit astonished at your marvelous grace. The redemption that the angels themselves long to look into. Father, would you come and show us your son. Show us the grace that you have for us in the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.